Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 60, recorded on April 16th, 2023. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice. So, as always, please do your own homework. We'll start with the market update, and then we'll get into the news. Starting with the Dow Jones average, which fell more than 100 points Friday, but notched its fourth straight positive week as disappointing data on March retail sales offset excitement around initial corporate earnings reports that came in better than expected. In the first bank earnings results since last month's collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase reported record quarterly revenues that easily beat analyst estimates boosting the stock 7.5%, while Citigroup and Wells Fargo also topped expectations. U.S. Treasury yields jumped Friday, lifting 10-year and 30-year rates to their biggest weekly gains in two months. And for the week, the Dow Jones jumped 1.2%, while the S&P 500 gained 0.8%, and the NASDAQ composite added 0.3%. Looking ahead, earnings season picks up serious steam in the final full week of April with a host of bank earnings following Friday's opening salvo of positive prints from J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citi. In particular, a beleaguered regional bank will be up to bat with Bank Ozark, Zions Bank Corporation, and other expected to complement reports from bigger banks like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. Elsewhere, Investor favorites Netflix, Lockheed Martin, Johnson & Johnson, and of course Tesla are expected to post quarterly updates. On the economic front, housing data will be the focal point a week after inflation and retail sales take center stage. NAHB housing index data, housing starts, and existing home sales are all expected to be updated during the week, offering a picture of the housing market amid a rising rate environment. Mortgage rate and application data will also be provided by the Mortgage Bankers Association in midweek. Outside of housing, unemployment and PMI data is also anticipated on Thursday and Friday, respectively, each of which could serve to inform Fed decision-making ahead of its blackout period, which begins on Saturday. Okay, getting into the news, um, the first thing I wanted to go through was a a guy that I listened to on uh, George Gammon's podcast. Uh, his name's Robert Barnes. He's an attorney and a uh, pretty interesting guy, libertarian. Um, but anyway, he had some comments I thought that were kind of interesting on the demise of the dollar, which uh, you know has been in the mainstream news a lot lately, and, and a lot of people have been talking about it. Um, and you know it becomes popular at different times uh you know over the last i don't know 30 40 years uh and yet it's still hanging around so uh i will go through this and then you know as always i'll include links to everything in the show notes if you want to go through it yourself uh but this is off of his blog post uh let's see it was dated monday april 10th 
And he gets into it here. Before World War I, the British pound held more than half of all reserves. The newly issued U.S. dollar had no international reserve presence. World War I changed that. By the end of the war, the British pound still dominated, but the U.S. dollar quickly replaced the other competitors, surging rapidly to nearly 25% of the world's reserves. By 1922, the dollar surged past the pound, and they would flip-flop lead positions for the next two decades. By the end of the 1920s, the dollar held a majority reserve currency status, which then switched to the pound during the 1930s. Before World War II, the pound surged back to a dominant role in reserve currencies with a three-to-one edge over the dollar. It took until the middle of the 1950s for the dollar to take back the reserve currency status, which it held and surged in the 1960s. By 1970, the rise of the euro dollar, often domiciled in London, led to abandoning the British pound such that by the 1970s, the pound barely broke double digits in reserve currencies. The next challenger, the euro, rose to compete with the dollar in the 1980s, reducing the dollar to around 50% of reserve currency status until the 90s surge in euro-dollar lending brought the dollar back to nearly two-thirds status. The GFC shrank that to around 60%, but the euro has never proven a real competitor. The smaller competitors never took off. The yen rose to nearly 10% in the 1980s, but has never broke double digits and hovers around 5% today in its fourth decade of lethargic economy. Of note, the Chinese yuan has never comp competed, barely breaking 3% ever in this time period. Contrary to Ray Dalio's assumptions, the yuan has not followed the dollar's path as its trade boomed, and indicators suggest China's economic power may be flatlining. In 2006, China's exports made up 36% of GDP, today about half that. Various studies suggest China's actual GDP is 40% less than the official data. Top-down state-controlled economies struggle with innovation essential to continued growth. This flawed system produced unproductive lending, creating bubbles in real estate, dubious infrastructure projects, and other affiliated unproductive sectors of the economy. Much of China's debt, including its Belt and Road Initiative lending to foreign nations, is actually denominated mostly in dollars not yuan. China's banks and corporations often borrow in dollars as well. The promise of settlements in a China-driven BRICS currency basket faces the big problem that China wants to control its currency, limit capital flight of its currency, and prices its own exports and imports, much like that of the debt, in dollars. There is also almost no evidence that foreign importers outside Russia to China want yuan or that everyday folks want to transact in yuan. Even aside from the Snyder theory of euro-dollar bank-controlled currency and its role in global funding, the dollar dominance in global markets at every level, daily forex exchange transactions, trade, debt, assets at the individual corporate and sovereign level, show the dollar is going nowhere soon. Nearly 90% of all daily currency transactions need the dollar. An estimated $100 trillion of global balance sheets denominate their assets and debt in dollars, Many foreign nations also borrowed in dollars over the last decade. Worries about loss of reserve status look quite misplaced. So uh, interesting uh, counterpoint to a lot of the mainstream media. And of course, you know, the saying goes, whenever the mainstream media gets a hold of something, 
uh, it's probably wrong. So there you have it. Uh, this next article is off of Bitcoin.com. This was just updated and I uh, thought it was kind of an interesting one here. Lessons on Fractional Reserve Banking from 15th Century Italy, the Fall of Medici Bank. Uh, the collapse of three major banks in mid-March 2023 has caused people to scrutinize the risks of fractional reserve banking. The practice of fractional reserve banking is essentially when a financial institution holds only a fraction of deposits in the bank and the remaining funds are used to lend or invest in order to obtain a yield. One of the earliest known examples of fractional reserve banking was the Medici Bank, founded in Florence, Italy in 1397 by Giovanni di Bici dei Medici. In the first five years of operation, the Medici Bank grew rapidly, and before the financial institution's demise, it established branches all over Western Europe, similar to bankers in the early 20th century like J.P. Morgan, Jacob Schiff, Paul Warburg, and George F. Baker. Members of the House of Medici were extremely powerful. The Medici Bank was known to be one of the largest business enterprises during the Renaissance, but ultimately failed after close to 100 years of operation. Philip J. Waits, the president of the Swiss Finance and Technology Association, explained in a 2015 LinkedIn post how the weight of excessive lending and insufficient reserves led to the bank's ultimate demise. According to Raymond de Ruver's book, The Rise and Decline of the Medici Bank, 1397 to 1494, published in 1963, Liquidity was an issue from the bank's inception. De Ruver's book details that the Medici's reserves held less than 10% of deposits due to the family members' managerial abilities. The 380-page book explains how the Medici Bank experienced a period of decline between 1463 and 1490 due to shady and corrupt banking practices. The fraudulent schemes caused several Medici branches to be liquidated and sold off to other banks. De Ruver argued that despite being a prominent member of the House of Medici and a successful banker, Francesco Sassetti was unable to avoid the disastrous liquidation of the Bruges, London, and Milan branches. De Ruver's book notes that significant lending was a popular practice that gathered high interest rates. Florins, gold coins minted by the Republic of Florence, were often held in the Medici bank balance sheet. However, the lack of reserves was a constant source of frustration for both Medici banking partners and government officials and customers. In a 2018 editorial on BigThink.com, author Mike Colagrossi detailed that it was due to advancements in financial solutions like these that the Medici bank became so powerful, as the Medicis received high interest on loan payments. Colagrossi notes the downfall of the bank took place after the death of Cosimo Medici in 1464, who was the bank's boss at the time. After the fall of three major banks in 2023, Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, a firm that specializes in macroanalysis for institutional investors, explained how fractional reserve banking was invented by the Medicis in Florence in the late 15th century. In his Twitter post, Bianca also mentions the Tuppence scene in the 1960s Disney musical film Mary Poppins and the bank run scene from It's a Wonderful Life filmed in the 1930s, stating that all of these are still very relevant depictions of what is happening today. Bianca opined, nothing that is happening is new. 
Our banking system is several hundred years old and has constantly had these issues. Bianco also mentioned that double entry bookkeeping was the technology used to enable the Medici Bank's fractional reserve banking practices. The double entry scheme involves a ledger that records both debits and credits and is still used in the modern financial world today. At the time, the Franciscan friar Luca Pacioli wrote a book about double-entry accounting with help from the well-known Renaissance artist Leonardo da Vinci. Although Pacioli and da Vinci did not claim to invent the new system, their research led to the wider and more structured use of double-entry bookkeeping that's still used today. Soon after the method was popularized, Giovanni de Medici implemented the concept into his family's bank. It allowed the House of Medici to operate with less than 10% of deposits and extend its lending practices far and wide until liquidity completely dried up. More than 600 years later, an anonymous person or group released a paper that introduced the concept of triple-entry bookkeeping. In addition to records of both debits and credits, a third component was added, which is a cryptographic receipt verified by a third party to validate the ledger's entries. Satoshi Nakamoto's invention has produced a system where a double-entry bookkeeping system doesn't need to be trusted now that an improved ledger accounting scheme exists. A single-entry or double-entry accounting system can be forged and manipulated, but the cryptographic assurance from a triple entry bookkeeping system is much harder to add fraudulent data to. While Bianco is correct that there is nothing new with the way bankers operate today compared to the days of Medici, Nakamoto's invention has given the world a new method of accounting that can transform it a great deal, just as the invention of double entry bookkeeping has done. Uh, so nice plot twist at the end there uh, to bring in Bitcoin. Gotta love it. Okay, uh, next move, the next uh, article here is from Bitcoin.com. This was posted today, and it's entitled CBDC Debate Heats Up. BIS Project Sparks Controversy Among Critics. Lynette Zhang Warns of Dangers of CBDCs. Uh, in the past week, discussions about CBDCs have trended on social media and commentary shows that people are highly skeptical about central bank cryptocurrency assets. Opposition has come from well-known influencers and politicians worldwide. Former Congress member and 2020 U.S. Uh, presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard recently criticized the idea in the United States. The Biden administration aims to implement a central bank digital currency to bring about a cashless society, allowing them to track everything we purchase and control our money, Gabbard opined. The, govern the government's FedNow system is needed as the first step to achieve their dream of a cashless society. This needs to be stopped at its inception or it will be too late. Uh, the U.S. Central Bank's FedNow program has sparked much debate in recent times, and just recently the Federal Reserve asserted that the project was not a digital currency, CBDC, or cash replacement. Other discussions have centered around the Bank for International Settlements CBDC project or pilot, Project Icebreaker. BIS recently released a video about the project and people have commented on the organization's statements. Convincing you to support a controlled central bank digital currency has begun, tweeted podcaster James Miller. 
Natalie Smolensky, senior fellow at the nonpartisan nonprofit organization, the Bitcoin Policy Institute, also criticized Project Icebreaker video. Literally all the benefits of the CBDC interoperability project, BIS Project Icebreaker, can already be realized by the Bitcoin Lightning Network, Smolensky wrote. CBDCs are completely unnecessary. There is no problem that they solve. They're just reinserting central banks into functions where they've already been made obsolete. According to the Atlantic Council's CBDC tracker, 114 countries are working on CBDCs and 11 countries have fully launched implementations. Lynette Zhang, the chief market analyst at ITM Trading, has warned about the dangers of CBDCs in a recent video with Michelle McCory, the head, the lead anchor at Kitco News. This is not the first time Zhang has been critical of CBDCs. She spoke to McCory about the subject in a video published last February. In her most recent discussion, Zhang talked about the collapse of Silvergate Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature Bank, and claimed that the failures were by design. Zhang believes that a CBDC will usher in a totalitarian monetary system that will become the economy's new norm. They need a big enough crisis so that people will agree to this next iteration, the CBDC, Zhang explained to McCory in her latest interview. It also takes the world into a full surveillance economy that could be controlled directly by the central bank if all of your wealth is held inside the system. Zhang believes with CBDCs, negative rates will be imposed on people's bank accounts and individuals' principal will be threatened. Central bank digital currencies are really about control and also about the ability to take away principal, Zhang said. Negative rates attack your principal. When they come out with a CBDC, it doesn't mean that the crisis is over. It's just the next phase of it. Not everyone opposes the concept of CBDCs, and in a recent opinion editorial, the Keynesian economist Paul Krugman criticized Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's recent opposition to a central bank digital currency. Uh, Krugman also referred to the hostility as resistance against woke money and claimed that DeSantis may be motivated by general paranoia. On Twitter, Krugman also opined that the dissent towards CBDCs may be tied in with a broader push by monetary conspiracy theory types and claim the theories have been a right-wing thing for a while. <laughs> and uh, George Gavin has also talked a lot about this too, and uh, I think he's right. He, the, 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 the main concern is if there's some kind of a point-of-sale system that's launched uh, that the central bank requires you to use. Um, that would capture, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, your your transactions. So, in other words, you go to Chipotle, instead of just saying nine dollars at Chipotle, it would actually know what you bought there. Was it a tofu bur burrito or was it a beef burrito? And so, when you when you have transactional level detail, uh, you know, you can use that information to develop uh, social credit scores and, and, and other things like that. But without that amount of detail, it's very difficult in a centralized system, it's very difficult to do that. So uh, so, so that's, I think, uh, probably a, a, a main concern as it relates to central bank digital currencies. And the reality is there's, there's an awful lot of surveillance. Uh, in fact, uh, Robert Barnes, who was also on, um, or just podcast and who I 
read the article earlier, he talked about the IRS and, and you know, how much um, information, I guess, they get on your tax returns, for example. Uh, you know, and that's really what tax deductions are, is it, it, uh, it gives you an incentive to sort of, as he says, rat yourself out. <laughs> And so uh, there's already a, a tremendous amount of surveillance, you know, uh, between the IRS and, and um, uh, you know, credit card companies and banks, which are all pretty, pretty well centralized. Um, but uh, certainly central bank digital currency is, uh, is, uh, would be the next level. Um, and certainly the way it would get introduced would, would almost have to be a crisis. And, but it would be called something different because, you know, you, wouldn't want to label it that since everybody knows what that is. Um, and who knows? I mean, there's a, probably a small minority of people that really uh, care a lot about this and don't want to see it, but the majority of people probably don't pay enough attention to really understand it. So, uh, but it is nonetheless something that we need to be concerned about and keep our eyes on. And, um, Certainly, there's a lot of activity on the part of the, the governments to uh, experiment with these things. And I think I've even talked about uh, Nigeria had a central bank digital currency. They made it optional. It got no adoption. Then they wanted, Then they forced it, and they basically uh, eliminated the paper currency. And um, you know, it's either use that or you you can't pay for anything unless you go outside of the system, um, which some people have done, but it's very difficult to obviously pay for your day-to-day -day things if you don't have a currency that you can use. And not everybody accepts Bitcoin yet. So, uh, but we'll have to continue to watch this one. All right, next article here is uh, U.S. House Committee Publishes Draft Stablecoin Bill. Uh, I thought this was kind of an interesting headline. Uh, the U.S. House Financial Services Committee published a draft version of a potential landmark stablecoin bill with proposals including a moratorium on stablecoins backed by other cryptocurrencies and a request to study a central bank digital currency. The bill available on the committee's hearing page represents the first major piece of crypto legislation to move in 2023 and follows two key incidents over the past year involving stablecoins, the blowup of TerraUSD, which was backed by a token called Luna, and the second largest one, US dollar coin, temporarily becoming unmoored from a dollar. It creates definitions for payment stablecoin issuers, echoing a term former Senator Pat Tomey used when he introduced his own stablecoin bill in 2022. The moratorium on stablecoins like UST would last until a study can be conducted. The bill also seeks a study on the potential impact of a CBDC issued by the Federal Reserve. Punchbowl News first reported on the bill's publication. A House Financial Services subcommittee will hold a hearing on stablecoins on Wednesday featuring Dante Desparte from Circle Internet Financial, which issues USDC. <clears throat> the Blockchain Association's Jake Chervinsky, Columbia Professor Austin Campbell, and New York Department of Financial Services Superintendent Adrian Harris. That hearing will come a day after the full Financial Services Committee meets to hear from Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler. 
The spokesperson for Representative Patrick McHenry, the chair of the committee, told Coindesk the bill published on the site had been circulating among lawmakers since last fall. It had not previously been shared with the public. A spokesperson for Representative Maxine Waters, the ranking member of the committee, did not respond to a request for comment by press time. Um, so a little concerning here that they want to study a CBDC. So again, you can't can't seem to get away from that. All right, next article is from Crypto News, and this was posted on uh, April 15th. Uh, Silk Road Bitcoin thief, once worth $3.4 billion, receives one-year prison sentence. And the article starts out, a Georgia man who stole more than 50,000 Bitcoin from the Silk Road marketplace in 2012 has been sentenced to a year in prison. In a Friday press release, the U.S. Justice Department said James Zhang has been sentenced to one year and one day in prison for charges related to executing a scheme to steal more than 51,680 Bitcoin from the Silk Road drug trafficking site. The DOGA noted that Zhang had been charged with one count of wire fraud for unlawfully obtaining approximately 50,000 Bitcoin from the Silk Road dark web internet marketplace. According to the federal agency in 2021, U.S. police searched Zhang's home in Gainesville, Georgia, and discovered approximately 50,676 Bitcoin worth more than $3.36 billion. Notably, the seizure went unannounced until November last year when the DOJ eventually revealed that it discovered approximately $3.36 billion in stolen Bitcoin during an unannounced 2021 raid on James Zhang's home. With Bitcoin trading at around $11 in 2012, the stash of stolen Bitcoin was worth about $600,000 at the time of the heist. However, when authorities seized devices holding the stolen Bitcoin in November 2021, its value exploded, making it the second largest financial seizure in U.S. history. Zhang has entered a guilty plea to one count of wire fraud, which carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Before being arrested, Zhang spent $16 million of the stolen Bitcoin on real estate investments, luxury hotels, nightclubs, and Lamborghinis, prosecutors said. Cyber criminals should heed this message. We will follow the money and hold you accountable, no matter how sophisticated your scheme and no matter how long it takes, said U.S. Attorney Damian Williams. Meanwhile, prosecutors have asked the judge to give him less than two years in prison, citing his youth, his autism, and his help in recovering the stolen crypto. He was severely bullied and victimized by his peers because he was different. He was extremely shy, overweight, and most significantly suffered from undiagnosed autism spectrum disorder, Zhang's lawyers said in court papers. It is worth noting that Zhang did not execute a sophisticated hacking technique to steal the funds. Rather, he used a simple glitch on Silk Road's website. Zhang, who stored some Bitcoin on Silk Road, mistakenly double-clicked the withdrawal button which resulted in the withdrawal happening twice. Subsequently, he deposited more tokens and quickly withdrew them, double-clicking each time. In their sentencing memo, Zhang's lawyers argued that while he had no right to the stolen Bitcoin, but neither did Silk Road. They said the marketplace isn't a victim in the true sense of the word under the law, noting that Silk Road's imprisoned founder, Ross Ulbricht, contacted Zhang and asked him how he took the cryptocurrency. 
The Silk Road marketplace, defunct for roughly 10 years, allowed users to buy and sell illicit goods such as weapons and stolen credit card information using Bitcoin. Ross Ulbricht, the creator of the platform, was arrested for his role in 2013 and is currently serving two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Okay, moving on here. Next article is from Bitcoin Magazine. This was posted, uh, I think, today. Uh, and the article is titled, Gold Bugs Still Don't Get It. Bitcoin's Ledger Makes It the Better Store of Value. And this is an opinion piece by Luke Groom, a civil engineer, JD MBA student, and part-time strategy associate with Marathon Digital Holdings. In the last couple of years, Jordan Peterson has been diving down the sound money rabbit hole. And for me, it's been a pleasure to watch from a distance. So many of the values he espouses align with the values that Bitcoin encourages, such as personal responsibility and a search for truth. So it was only a matter of time before he became interested in Bitcoin. He has spoken with Safety Amos and Robert Breedlove in recent years, and even as a non-Bitcoiner per se, captivated the audience at the Bitcoin conference in Miami in 2022. A more recent conversation with Roy Sabag was also enjoyable to listen to, though it illustrated for me the need to discuss the differences between gold and Bitcoin, not just their properties as monetary units, but also the properties of their ledgers. To be sure, gold bugs such as Sabag and Peter Schiff share many beliefs with Bitcoiners. I respect them and their work. There is a lot of overlap in the problems and solutions that both gold bugs and Bitcoiners address. But the arguments for Bitcoin as a superior unit of account have been discussed at length. Sabag and Schiff argue that gold is valuable in part because it has other uses, such as in cell phone parts and dentistry, whereas Bitcoin has no other uses. This is true. However, I'm not sure how this is relevant. Why do we need our money to have other features besides just being money? Where is that written? If the monetary premium for gold disappeared and it was only used for its other tangible purposes, gold's price would utterly collapse. Furthermore, if gold became the global unit of account as gold bugs wanted to, gold would be used even less for non-monetary purposes due to cost limitations. Its monetary premium would increase, thereby weakening their own argument about having other valuable uses. A monetary unit need only have good monetary properties and interact well with its ledger. As the generally accepted properties of money dictate, an ideal monetary unit would be portable, durable, accepted, scarce, fungible, divisible, and resistant to counterfeiting. As a unit, Bitcoin is equal to or superior to gold in all of these features, with the exception of acceptability. Gold's market cap is still roughly 20 times that of Bitcoin's, meaning it is still more widely accepted. Talking about the units, however, is only a fraction of the conversation. We must also look at the ledger. Our modern society requires the use of ledgers to transact money. Moving physical dollars or physical gold around the world is simply too costly dangerous, and logistically challenging. Instead, we rely on the ledgers of credit card companies, banks, and central banks to facilitate the movement of money. Our whole system, except the relatively few physical dollars in existence, is a system of entirely ledger-based money. Because ledgers have become necessary in modern commerce, and because no one is advocating a return to society, 
in which all commerce is conducted exclusively by in-person exchanges of money, when analyzing monetary systems, we must not only look at the units on our ledgers, but also the ledgers themselves. Bitcoin's properties as a ledger are what make it a far superior monetary system to anything in existence. If we were to think of the properties that make up an ideal ledger, they would be reliable, unattackable, verifiable, global, accessible, trustworthy, and able to provide fast final settlement. While the sound money properties of gold versus those of Bitcoin were relatively close when considering the units behind the ledger, when comparing the ledgers themselves, Bitcoin is far superior. From a monetary unit perspective, Bitcoiners and gold bugs agree that gold-based system would encourage monetary responsibility and limit inflation. However, gold bugs have not provided any prevalent suggestions to improve the U.S. dollar ledger system. That current system is flawed in that it is unverifiable for individuals, inaccessible for individuals to interact with directly, and slow to process final settlement. <clears throat> How would a gold-based ledger be any better? Furthermore, the gold bugs have not provided any meaningful suggestions about how to avoid the problems of debasement, which have been a constant for centuries. We have already run the experiment of a gold-based ledger over the past 800 years. The Medici family popularized the ledger-based gold-backed banking in Italy and throughout Europe as early as the 12th and 13th centuries. Europeans, in effect, used ledgers to transfer their gold great distances. People and governments continue to use the system of overlapping ledgers packed by, backed by gold for centuries, and each of those countries saw corruption of the ledger, the failure of their currency, or the debasement of gold. So what mechanisms do gold bugs suggest to avoid the corruption and debasement of a gold-based ledger in the future? I've not heard any. Bitcoin is beautiful in that it provides an elegant solution to both the unit and the ledger. The unit provides all of the characteristics of sound money, and the ledger is reliable, unattackable, verifiable, global, accessible, provides fast final settlement, and is trustworthy. An individual can personally interact with the ledger and provide verified final settlement across the globe in a matter of minutes on a ledger that doesn't require a trusted intermediary. I have a lot of respect for gold bugs and even own a modest amount of gold myself. With that in respect in mind, I asked Peterson, Sibag, Schiff, and other gold bugs when comparing monetary systems to analyze both the unit and the ledger and then come to their own conclusions. So this is a really great piece and there's actually a couple charts in here that show all these different things with color codes which is kind of nice so check that out. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes but uh, pretty very consistent actually with a lot of what I've written about and talked about in the past in terms of the uh, advantages um, of Bitcoin over gold and also um, and also that the uh, Bitcoiners and, and the gold bugs really do have a lot more in common than they sometimes like to think uh, in terms of sound money and, and how they look at the world. So, And then uh, I did want to draw your attention, I won't go into it here, but uh, I will include a link in the show notes to uh, this week's blog post. Uh, it's time for the monthly portfolio update for April. Um, bulls and bears deeply frustrated, so uh, check that out. I'll put the link down there, and uh, I go through my 
<clears throat> high-level macro overview and then uh, get into my portfolio strategy, which you know really doesn't change too much <laughs> from month to month. Uh, but uh, you know the markets uh, certainly have been pretty wild, um, which is part of the reason why I've been pretty defensive. And that about wraps it up. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Uh, also, check me out on Value for Value. Um, one of my favorite podcast apps now is Fountain, where you get paid um, sats for listening. And you can also uh, stream sats to your favorite podcaster or send a shout out or whatever. Uh, you can also follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com, and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Nick Reichert. And oh, and I'm also on Noster. Uh, if you're on Noster, um, it's Bitcoin Fortress. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.